even AT&T and CenturyLink and people like that actually draw from these funds as well. So it's not just these small rural telephone companies, but it's actually all companies that provide service to these rural areas. Because the reality is end user revenues are not enough to be able to pay for that loop that goes out to that customer's home. Welcome to episode 444 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. This is Rye Marcatilio McCracken here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Today, Christopher talks with Larry Thompson, CEO of Vantage Point Solutions, a South Dakota-based company which provides engineering, consulting, and regulatory services for ISPs of all sizes. The two talk about how the variety of subsidy and grant programs we've built to get broadband out into rural areas and make sure folks can afford internet access came about, and the policy changes we're likely to see in the near future to make sure existing networks and new construction remains viable. In particular, Larry and Christopher spend time talking about the Universal Service Fund and the National Exchange Carrier Association, and how we come to terms with an increasing need for support in the face of a declining base from which to draw funds. Christopher and Larry discuss the USF's sustainability as the contribution level nears 30%, alternatives to existing models, and what it will take to commit to fast, affordable broadband for all Americans in the decades to come. Now here's Christopher talking with Larry. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. It's the first time I've said that in 2021. It feels good to be back. And I'm back today with Larry Thompson, the CEO of Vantage Point. Welcome to Community Broadband Bits, Larry. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks, Christopher. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Hopefully, like you said, uh, 2021 is going to be better than 2020 when it comes to um getting out and meeting people and things like that. So I'm looking forward to the new year as well. Yes. Yes. It'll be terrific. And um, I think like me, you're in the great North. So um, <laughs> being inside is, um, is a little bit easier and it's very hard to visit people on the weekends uh, when you can't just hang out outside with them. Um, well, when you live in Mitchell, South Dakota, it's all snowy outside. So we don't want to get outside anyway right now. Right. So. Right, that except for the, I've been get I've been getting into the ice skating, so I'm I'm excited, <laughs> and I have some bruises on my knees and hips to prove it. Um, so I, I actually I probably messed up the name of, of Vantage Point. Is it Vantage Point Communications? Is it just straight Vantage Point? It's actually Vantage Point Solutions is our official name, but so you see abbreviated VPS, but most people refer to us as Vantage Point, just like you did. And that's fine. And I, I, I should just note that um, we've done some interviews with Vantage Point folks over the years, in part because Kevin Klein is one of the most infectiously likable people I've ever met. Um, and so always enjoy the opportunity to, to learn from and talk to, to folks from VPS. Um, just briefly, what do you do for folks that aren't familiar with you? So we have around 400 employees. We're, our main headquarters is in Mitchell, South Dakota, although we have remote offices and um, just outside Portland and San Antonio, Colorado Springs, Springfield, Illinois, um, South Carolina. So we've got remote offices scattered around. Our main headquarters is here. We do broadband engineering and consulting for um, probably four or 500 companies across the United States, you know, from small rural telephone companies to, um, you know, all the way up to Google or price cap carriers or cable TV companies and so a variety, if you're into broadband, do a lot with rural electric co-ops as well. And so if you're into broadband, we do a lot of the engineering and consulting work. Um, we're also very involved on the regulatory side. So I've uh, been on the NECA rate development task force, for example, for over 20 years. Um, NECA um, has a variety of uh, committees that I've sat on. 
NTCA also. Hey, I'm on the industry committee for NTCA. Spent a lot of time going to DC and spending time with the FCC uh, lobbying for various broadband purposes. And you just mentioned NECA, which is N-E-C-A, but I can't remember what it stands for. I bet you can. Yeah, National Exchange Carriers Association. So if you're a small rural telephone company, of which there's about a thousand or so in the United States, um, that cover around 70% of the land mass or so, but about a thousand of small telephone companies, most of them are, um, you know, use NECA for their tariffing and various pooling functions and things like that. But they were created back at the vestiture in 1984 um, to handle things like cost studies and the pooling that helps make it possible for a lot of these rural telephone companies to provide, you know, services, broadband and voice. You know, back then it was voice, but now broadband to these very rural areas where it's too expensive to serve just based on end user revenues. And we're going to we're going to talk more about NECA moving forward, but I thought it might be easier for folks and a little more familiar to ease in with our, our two topics to talk with the Universal Service Fund. And I really appreciate you sharing your expertise as someone who's been working on this, um, thinking about it, lobbying on it. Um, I feel like a lot of people don't really have a sense of exactly how the Universal Service Fund works. And frankly, most of the time I'm explaining it to someone in my back of my head, I'm wondering if I'm getting it right. So, <laughs> so I'm hoping then we can have a, an easy to understand discussion about it. Uh, this is a fund that is designed broadly to solve the issue of making sure everyone across the United States has high quality internet access, uh, high quality telecommunications access before that. Um, and, and so uh, let's just start with, uh, with, with what exactly it is now. And I, I think we can um, ignore some of the, the history to the extent we can, <laughs> but, but we can simplify a little bit of the rougher edges, but, but it's four programs. And, and just tell, me, tell us a little bit about how it works. Yeah, so conceptually, it's, it's fairly easy to understand. When you get down into the details and the nuts and bolts, there are a lot of rules and regulations exactly, you know, all the details that we probably don't want to get lost in today. But um, at a high level, the uh, high cost support has several different pieces of it. So like, let's say the Schools and Libraries Corporation, you know, this, you know that provides uh, money to, for uh, broadband to schools and things like that are all part of you know, this high cost fund, it's a lifeline program and things like that. But the thing that we're probably most interested in is that the high cost loop support. And what the high cost loop support does is provides funding so that these rural telephone companies that provide support to very high cost areas, in fact, even AT&T and CenturyLink and people like that actually draw from these funds as well. So it's not just these small rural telephone companies, but it's actually all companies that provide you know, service to these rural areas because the reality is end user revenues are not enough to be able to pay for that loop that goes out to that customer's home. And if you think about some of these places might be $15,000 or $20,000 to put that copper or fiber line out to a, a rural farm and you're getting $50 a month for their POTS line, you can realize pretty quickly you know, you're never going to get enough money off of that customer to be able to pay for all of the costs associated with installing and operating that loop. So back, actually, this started back in 1934 with the original Telecom Act when um, the policy was they wanted everybody to have a telephone line. That's what it was, a voice communications for 911 and other reasons. They realized that the person in New York's voice line just became more important 
when the guy in you know rural North Dakota could have one as well. And so everybody pitched in a little bit of extra. You know, the guy in New York paid a little bit more than he needed to for his POTS line. And fortunately, there wasn't that many rural lines compared to the urban lines. And so that helped support all of these rural lines and essentially to buy them down to the cost of an urban line. Right. So that's the um, the high cost portion, which, if I understand correctly, I mean, I think it's worth noting people who are familiar with Connect America Fund, with RDOF, with uh, ACAM, which maybe fewer people are familiar with. These are these are different programs within that high cost fund, which is, I think, perhaps the most interesting <laughs> of the four um, parts of the Universal Service Fund. Is that a correct categorization? Yeah. So they have now changed how they support these companies. Instead of calling it high cost fund, they usually refer to it as the Connect America Fund, CAF nowadays. And so it, they've changed the methodology of how they draw the money out of this big pot of money that they have, which is like $9 billion now per year. Um, it used to be uh, based on submitting cost studies and things like that, where a company would come in and say, here's all of my expenses and here's how much I had to pay to provide service to all these high cost people. And in order to get a reasonable rate of return, this is how much I fell short. So you're going to make up the difference. The uh, government came along and said, well, I'm going to give you some other options of how you can do that. Rather than going through all of that paperwork and um, accounting and things like that, they developed a model and said, it, you know, it was actually this Connect America Fund model where they commissioned this company to go out and say, could you estimate for me how much it really is based on lots of complex parameters on how dense it is, how much rock is in the ground to construct, um, how much people are willing to pay and things like that and say, how much do you think it would cost to be able to provide service and how much support do they need? They developed this complex model and then they allowed the companies and said, instead of doing these complex cost studies, would you rather opt into this fixed amount that we're just going to give you, you know, every month for the next 10 years? And right now, about 60% of the companies, these small rural companies, have actually opted into ACAM, which is uh, Alternative Connect America model. So they, uh, they had an ACAM 1 offering and they had an ACAM 2 offering. And between the two different offerings, about 60% of the companies now are getting their support through a fixed mechanism that has nothing to do with their investment anymore. It's just a fixed amount based on what the FCC thinks they should have. And then the other 40% are still what they call legacy, are still doing it the old way of doing it through a cost study process and determining how much they should get from NECA or USAC, Universal Services Access Corporation. That's it's very helpful, and I, I there's a lot of people who would like us to go further into that and in, in pros and cons, but but we're going to save that for another conversation. Um, so that's where a lot of the money goes in terms of the connections for for residents in, across rural America. There's also programs we're not going to spend as much time talking about. One is Lifeline, which provides a $9.25 subsidy uh, for a lot of folks, and then um, additional f money for folks living on uh, tribal reservations. Um, and there's the E-Rate program, which people have heard about, which is uh, schools and libraries uh, mostly. And then there's the telemedicine program that I know very little about. It is a rural telemedicine, but they're increasingly making it more urban as well. Um, so those are the, those, that's the components of the university 
Universal Service Fund, uh, right? That's correct. And so all of the things that you just mentioned make up that $9 billion or so. About half of that is this high cost fund that I was just talking about. And the other functions, like you said, like Lifeline is really intended for people that can't afford a, you know, a pot line. So it actually helps offset some of those kinds of low income kind of things. And you're right. All of those make up you know, that bigger pot of money. You're right. And now the the part that we'll perhaps be talking a lot about over the next year, uh, contribution. Where does the money come from? Yep. So when you look at your telephone bill, like let's say you make a long distance call and you look at your telephone bill, anything that's interstate revenue associated when it comes to telecommunications has a fee that goes on to that. And so you'll see, oh, you made $20 worth of long distance calls. And then there's this, and they'll name it different things, different companies on different bills. But there's something on there about, you know, universal service or high cost support or something like that. And usually nowadays it's in the 20 some percent, you know, that you're going to be paying in addition to whatever that interstate, um, you know, fee was, they add another 20 some percent on, and that's the money that gets sent into fund this, you know, billions, eventually becomes billions and billions of dollars that they divvy out for these various programs we just mentioned. Um, so in most all telecommunications, if you're a wireless provider, if you're a landline provider, um, will pay into this high cost fund that eventually pays for these things. Now, part of the challenge of this and the controversy is that there are technologies that to an end user might seem very similar, but some of them may pay into the fund and some of them may not, which is you start dealing with distortions in the market then when you're talking about a 20%. And I believe we might be looking at 31% moving forward now. Yeah, it's recently now they're projecting it to go over 30%. So we're kind of, you know, when we got to 10%, we thought we were at the tipping point that we had to do something. And so part of the problem is, a lot of these comes, funds come from things like long distance where it's declining. People are not picking up their landline and making that long distance call like they used to. And so the base that they've been charging this on is a declining base. And so what ends up happening is if there's fewer minutes now to apply this uh, fee on, the fee actually has to go up if you want to keep funding the pool at the same level. And so the percentage has been going up with time. We've been talking about contributions reform for more than 10 years because the system we have is currently broken. As long distance minutes and things like that that we've typically used go away, we're going to have to figure out some other way to fund this pool. Nobody, you know, no FCC commissioner or chairman wants to be the one that brings along what they believe is a new tax. And uh, so it's kind of been a hot potato for many years that nobody seems to want to tackle. I think now that it's getting up in the range that it is, you know, over 30%, it's probably getting to the point where somebody's got to bite the bolt and do something. There's been some proposals that have come out. Like, for example, they have a, a joint board that they put together that has some FCC commissioners and some state regulatory, you know, utility commissioners on that come up with proposals for things like this. Um, there's also NARUC, which is a national association of regulators and things like that, that have all kind of weighed in on the subject. It seems like the industry now is kind of maybe converging around, not necessarily using interstate revenues as the base to be able to charge, but maybe do it on like phone numbers, for example. If you have a phone number, 
you have a flat fee, you know, that uh, to access the network, to be able to do it. They believe if they would make a, a transition into something like that, though, that fee might be somewhere in that, you know, 60 to 80 cent range uh, per number is what they might have to assess. And so you have a lot more numbers to assess. And so that, you know, the, uh, the rate shock would probably go down to the consumer if they could potentially do something like that. One of the things that I wanted to note, and and I feel like I want, I'll give you a chance to react in any way that you like, but I don't want to spiral into a long conversation about this because I really want to talk about NECA. <laughs> Everyone's dying for us to get to NECA. Um, one of the things that is a challenge is I feel like people might say, well, why doesn't Congress just appropriate money for this? And one of the reasons I think that we have the the telecommunications system we do is that um, Congress hasn't played political games with this fund. Uh, this is a, a fund that is uh, the amount of money in it is kind of determined by the expected demand of it. Um, and there's some challenges to continuing to do that, uh, one of which is now Congress has appropriated money for a significant broadband subsidy. And if that were to continue and this money that's going to be spent on the $3.5 billion on the, the broadband subsidy will not be a part of Lifeline. But if they did, you would see Lifeline increasing by 30 40%, which would be in perhaps even more um, on a yearly basis. Um, so there's there's significant challenges ahead. And I feel like for many of us, we would like to see this because we think telecommunications is so important. We don't want it to turn into a political football on the Hill where every year we don't know if Congress will fund enough money to make all these connections or not. So that's one of the additional variables. I think there is a benefit in the sense that, you know, and I referred to it earlier loosely as a tax, you know, no FCC commissioner wants to be the one with the new tax. In reality, it's not a tax. It's a self-funding system. You know, so the stuff that we're supporting with the fund, the services that are being delivered over that network are really what's supporting it as well. And so it's really not a tax. And so you bring up some good points that um, you don't want to go year to year wondering where your funding is going to come from. It's kind of a self-funded, self-sustaining system that they put in place that just kind of shares the revenues amongst the places that need it. Now, if you are a rural telephone company that is receiving funds from that, whether, um, and it may actually even depend on how you're getting it, whether it's from ACAM or RDOF or something else, you might be building a network that, again, to a resident looks identical to maybe what a rural electric cooperative is building with money that they may have received from a different fund, such as Reconnect from the United States Department of Agriculture. And... At that point, because you've received your money from a different bucket, you might have different regulations in terms of how you have to account and how you have to charge people for services based on these NECA models, as I understand it. And I have no idea how to dive into this, but I'm curious if maybe you can walk us through, um, you know, if you take the perspective of a of a small uh, a small local telecommunications company that's receiving uh, money from ACAM, for instance, um, how do they have to price their services in ways that they're kind of in a straitjacket compared to an electric co-op that doesn't have to worry about any of this? Well, one thing I want to distinguish between is a grant and support. So mm-hmm. there's three basic ways that these uh, companies will fund these very expensive networks. Um, but just to kind of set the stages, in a town, if I go into a city You can oftentimes build a full fiber to the home network from scratch, all electronics, all everything, engineering, materials, labor, and everything for, let's just say, $5,000 a location. You know, some 
Sometimes it's cheaper, sometimes a little more, but, but around that. If you got into these rural areas where you're a mile be between farmhouses, it could be 15 or $20,000 a location. So all of these things that we're talking about, kind of the goal is to try to get that rural guy to look like a town guy, because if you can do it for 5,000, just like the cable TV company can do it with no support, they can go out and build the network and there's enough end user revenues to make that network work. We're trying to get to the point where these rural ones are the same way. We buy it down to make them look like a town customer so that now end user revenues can make actually the network work. So to be very clear, what you're talking about is a is a solution that I love, which is one in which we do the model right up front and then we don't have to cut an additional check every month because we've 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 engineered it in such a way that it can just be self-financing moving forward and then none of us have to worry about this ever again. Mm -hmm. And there's some instances where that actually works. So there's two things. One to think about is support. And support is exactly what you're saying. It's that monthly payment that usually helps offset capital and operational expenses. Or you can give them one lump sum up front in a grant or a loan or a combination of the two that says, I'm going to pay you and then you figure out how to continue to operate it from here on out. Oftentimes when you look at where these rural telephone companies and you know serving these highly rural areas, it's about their expenses are about half and half. About half of it is made up of that capital expense and the depreciation stuff on the investment. And half of it is just the operational expense. So some of these companies, they might have two hours worth of windshield time to get out to that farm to you know, fix their phone or their broadband connection when it doesn't work. So there's a lot of operational expenses as well. Um, if you can actually get the network paid for or largely paid for up front and get enough end user revenue to offset those operational expenses, then you're probably okay and you can operate long term in that way. But some of these other things that you mentioned, Christopher, like the um, reconnect or some of these grant programs, we've seen a lot of money flowing in from CARES, for example. A lot of state states now have their own grant programs where oftentimes it's a match. You know, it's not free money, but they'll come in and say, if you put up 50%, we'll put up 50% to be able to make this work. And they'll give you a lump sum to build the network. And then you have to figure out how to continue to operate it over the life of that facility, which outside plant is usually 30 years or so. Um, so those are kind of two different methodologies. The government says, I'm going to give you a much smaller amount, let's say an ACAM, um, but I'm going to continue to give that to you for the next 10 years. And there's pros and cons either way. If you look at the amount of money that they might give you an ACAM uh, over that 10-year period, per location is probably smaller than some of these grant programs that give you that lump sum up front for that same location. So some, there's some pros and cons. It gives you with that 10-year, a little bit more revenue structure, um, you know, some predictability and things like that on revenue flow as well. And so some prefer it one way and some prefer it the other way. Not to say one is better or one is worse than the other. But if you are receiving certain kinds of support, as I understand it, for instance, and you want to offer a gigabit, you can't just set your pricing based on market reality, perhaps. You, as I understand it, there's certain guidelines you have to make in terms of how much you're pricing because of certain recovery um, uh, tables and things like that. Is that, is that right? Mm -hmm. That is true. It's getting probably less restrictive with time than uh, how it used to be. 
like for example, in broadband, if we take that for, for instance, anytime you take money from the federal government, it always comes with strings attached. Mm -hmm. um, so all of these programs that we're talking about with Connect America Fund, for example, if uh, this company takes money from the government, they're taking it under certain terms and conditions that say, well, if you give me that money, I'm gonna provide 25 meg down, three meg up broadband, or I'm gonna provide uh, 250 meg or one gig or whatever that speed might be. The FCC actually enforces performance requirements on you as well that says, well, you're required to test that and prove to me you're giving me, you know, what you said you were going to do for this investment I'm making in you. But likewise, there's also, when it comes to pricing to your end user, they put restrictions on you as well. So broadband, they actually come out um, annually with a new uh, table that's developed by surveying all carriers in the United States. If it's, you know, Comcast and Cox and AT&T and everybody else, they come up with what they believe is a typical price for these services. And you have to, at least in one of your tiers, be able to meet the prices of what they believe these benchmark rates in the, are in the United States. Alaska has their own rates that they have to meet, but the rest of the United States has a single unified rate, then you have to be at or below that rate in at least one of your broadband categories. So they don't give you this money and then you price everything at $500 a month. Regarding the the speed testing requirements that they check up on, I think, is that still mostly in the future? I think there's been multiple delays in rolling that out because... I have no doubt that almost all the small companies will meet those. I have no doubt that all, they'll also be the ones that are almost entirely tested, whereas the largest corporations who probably will be the worst at meeting them may be the least tested, just based on perhaps my cynicism or experience, depending on your point of view. <laughs> so you're right that uh, when it comes to testing, there's only a small cross-section of the small rural carriers that actually have to test and provide their information back to the FCC today. This year, though, in 2021, they have a pre-testing period for quite a few of the, car the carriers like that receive CAF Phase 2 money, for example, where the FCC is requiring they actually perform the test, submit the results, but there's no penalty if you fail. There's only a penalty if you don't submit the results. So this is kind of a pre-testing period. Most of the testing really starts in earnest. January of 2022, when actually, if you test and fail, there's financial um, penalties associated with that. And so generally speaking, when they give out money, they give you a couple of years to meet some sort of build out requirement, because it takes a couple of years to build these networks. And so usually you're, you know, three or four years away before you have to actually start testing. And so like RDOF, that's just going to be awarded this year, they don't have their build-out obligation start until next year, and it'll be three years after that before they have to actually start testing and committing, you know, and you know, submitting all of this to the FCC um, to prove that they're actually meeting their obligation. So we're just on the early edges right now of testing in earnest for these companies. But anything ACAM, if you're legacy, if you receive money in CAF phase two, these new RDOF ones, if you're rural broadband experiment. All of those guys have some testing requirement that phases in over the next couple of years. Okay. Thank you for that. The uh, the question I thought I wanted to, to work at with NECA, which I'm I'm still a little bit hazy on, is is this, which is, are there situations in which you have a rural telephone company that has built um, a fiber network 
and they feel that they are unable to offer a lower price than they would like to because they have certain um, obligations um, under NECA rates, for instance, I believe might be the way of phrasing it, um, in which they might say, you know, we'd love to do a gigabit at $100 a month, and uh, but we're required to, to charge more for that because of these um, conditions of the program under which we were funded. Yeah, so part of what NECA does for these companies is provide tariffing functions. And so they would they could go to the NECA tariff and be part of that NECA tariff. Now, I would say your concern was a much bigger concern five and 10 years ago, mm-hmm. where they were requiring, you know, that you would continue to have a POTS line and things like that all layered on top of your broadband, which did keep that price substantially higher. Um, one thing that's changed in the last couple of years is NECA has allowed a significant amount of pricing flexibility for these companies. And in fact, to the extent that if you don't like how NECA tariffs your DSL service, they let you actually opt out of the NECA DSL pool. And so that would allow you to opt out and do your own tariffing. And so you can have, you know, in certain times of the year, you're actually able to opt out and do your own tariffing. So that definitely was a big issue a couple of years ago. I would say it's uh, 20% of the issue it was uh, a few years ago. So it's reducing with time. They're getting less and less regulated when it comes to how they're pricing their services to their end user customers with time. I think they all realize that market conditions change throughout the U.S., and they have to allow them a certain amount of flexibility to be able to do that as well. But they also monitor things like they don't want to be giving support out and you're only charging $5 for your POTS line when the national average is 25. So they monitor things like that to make sure not only are you not too high, but that you're not too low. Now, when it comes to broadband specifically, we've made a move from POTS and data, you know, that you had to get a POTS line to this broadband only service as well. So they call it CBOL. You might've heard that acronym before, Consumer Broadband Only Loop, CBOL, which means now they've come up with this new mechanism that allows you to be able to offer this service without a pot site. So they've pulled away some of those regulatory constraints that they used to have. Small rural telephone companies like this get a higher percentage of their revenue from um, you know, the FCC or USAC and because of it, they tend to be higher regulated as well when you, than when you compare them to a CenturyLink or an AT&T or Verizon or somebody like that. So there are pro- more regulatory hoops that they have to jump through to be able to offer these. But I would say that the regulatory hoops are getting better with time, and they have a fair amount of flexibility now. Like I mentioned earlier with these uh, broadband categories now, that you only have to have one of those uh, speed tiers that meet that national threshold to be able to be considered good. And then you can price the other ones however you want. Sometimes we may feel they price them too high. Sometimes they may price them too low, but they have a lot of flexibility in how they do price those. Well, I love to, to hear that things are getting better. It's a, it's a great way to round out a show. Is there anything else that, that we should um, just talk about before I get rid of you? <laughs> um, you know, the other thing I would mention is, you know, there's still a lot of work left to be done when it comes to rural broadband, depending upon who you listen to, somewhere between, you know, 20 and 40 million locations probably still in the United States 
don't have adequate broadband. A couple of things that are happening is, one is, you know, the FCC threshold is 25 meg down, three meg up. You know, you look at UCLA and the average speed test nowadays is around 170 meg. I think most people would say the FCC's definition of broadband is woefully inadequate. No commissioner really wants to increase that right now because as soon as you increase it, there's going to be a whole lot more locations that don't have broadband. And so politically, it's a tough thing to stand in front of Congress. Usually we have the opportunity to increase those kinds of things when we have a change of commissioners, cha chairman, I should say. Um, and uh, that's, you know, will obviously happen here coming up on the 21st. And so I, I would expect that in the near term, we're going to see the national broadband speed increase to something more, maybe 100 by 20 or something. The other thing I think we're going to be seeing over the next year is going to be an increased emphasis on broadband spending. You know, we already saw that with the omnibus and the CARES bill that was just passed December 21st. Um, where there is um, quite a bit of money in there for these kinds of purposes. But I do think we're gonna see additional infrastructure bills as well as uh, you know, from the federal and the state side to be able to uh, get more broadband to these rural customers because everybody realizes to be competitive in the new world, you know, we've got to have a society that has world-class broadband and we've got a ways to go to get there. When I look at what the electric co-ops are doing, um, some of whom are your clients, when I look at what telephone companies are doing, some of whom are your clients, I'm just incredibly optimistic. And I've been saying for years, I feel like the hard work of rural broadband has been done in some sense in that five, six years ago, we were like, how are we ever going to do this? And now we're, we're kind of like, we just need the money. You know, like it's it's not the same sort of problem that I see in urban challenges, which is we don't really have a sense of what policy is actually going to solve this problem in urban areas of people who still can't connect. In rural areas, I think we have a sense. We have a lot of entities that are willing to invest. There's a lot of enthusiasm. It's just a matter of getting the money to the right places, which is not easy. But it's, it's very optimistic that we are going to solve this problem and well before the decade ends, I think. And do you think I'm, I'm out on a limb there or do you share that enthusiasm? Before the end of the decade, I would say that's probably realistic. Most people believe that to really get fiber to the home, which is really the end goal for um, getting broadband out there, and it's the least expensive way to get broadband to these rural areas, um, it's going to be another 60 to $80 billion, they believe. Um, so there's still a large task ahead of us. Five years ago, when I would sit down with my clients around the supper table and say, you know, what's keeping you up at night? Oftentimes it was things about, you know, these support mechanisms we've been talking about had been declining and they were wondering how they're going to continue to survive and, um, you know, they're, how they're going to, you know, what expense they could possibly cut to, to make it through the next year. I was just out with some clients just before the pandemic hit, back when we used to meet with clients. <laughs> and uh, I asked them the same question as, you know, what keeps you up at night? Their response was, trying to figure out which is the next best opportunity. So you think about five years ago, going from how am I going to survive mm -hmm. to the opportunities are so great now, which, how do I pick amongst them, you know, has been kind of transformational over the next five years. And I do believe over the next few years, I think one thing that is, uh, you know, regardless what aisle you're on in Congress um, everybody agrees broadband is important. This pandemic has really brought that to light that from education, healthcare, entertainment, communication, 
everything relies on broadband. That's the underlying thing that everybody is going to need in the future. And so I think everybody's in agreement on it and everybody wants to get that job finished. And I think it's realistic to do it by the end of the decade, like you said. I'm going to let you turn off the camera in a second, but you said something that I need to follow up on, or my WISP friends are going to are going to they're, they're going to be angry anyway. Frankly, you Vantage Point does really good uh, white papers as well. So for folks that are interested, um, you've been very good at looking at wireless from an engineering point of view, and and I have no doubt that you work on wireless systems. I don't want to. I don't want to sort of get into a fiber versus wireless. You made the point that fiber is the least expensive option to connect these homes. I've been saying that, but tell me as as a skeptical person, why is that the case? And when I say that, when you're looking at a rural area, for example, and we've done a lot of analysis on this and we do wireless and wireline engineering. I'm actually just in the middle of writing a, another paper, technology paper on wireless that I hope to submit to the FCC here in a couple of weeks. But if you look at over a 30-year life of a cable plant, that cable plant, even though it's expensive, um, you look at doing the same thing with wireless and replacing the electronics every five to seven years like you normally do, and the additional OPEX associated with you know, the windstorm that just misaligned your antennas and things like that, it's not uncommon for that fiber uh, to the home to end up being less expensive when you're looking at it over a longer horizon. If I'm limiting it to the life of, you know, seven years, let's say to the life of the wireless electronics, usually the fiber of the home is more expensive, usually it becomes cheaper when I take a longer term view and a longer horizon. The other thing I'll mention is it tends to favor fiber as the speeds increase. So if all I'm talking about is 10 meg or 25 meg or something like that, where I can put up a wireless tower and go out eight or 10 miles and be able to serve 25 meg, um, sometimes I can probably do wireless like expensively. But now with the speeds that I'm talking about and almost every expert will tell you that by before the end of the decade, gigabit internet is going to be the standard. There's just not enough low band spectrum that's gonna go out 10 miles to be able to offer that on a wide scale basis with the wireless solution. You're now looking at things where a lot of the spectrum is, is in the millimeter wave, where I measure my distances in hundreds or maybe a thousand feet. And when you have to put a tower up for every farmer, because they're more than a thousand feet apart, it does get somewhat expensive. So I, I believe that as time goes on over this next decade, you know, even though wireless is going to get better, it's not going to get better fast enough to meet the rapidly increased user demand that's really going to be provided by fiber. And I will mention one other thing before we leave here today is that most networks are kind of converging to look alike with time. You think about a fiber to the home network, I run fiber to the side of the house and I'm Wi-Fi inside of the house. So really my, my end user customer is connected to a wireless network. It just happens to be in the home. If you look at 5G and some of these new technologies that are based on millimeter wave, instead of that last 100 feet, now maybe I'm the last 500 feet that's wireless, it's still fiber to that tower. Every provider, if you're wireless or wireline, realizes that the ultimate bandwidth comes by pushing fiber closer to the customer. It's We're really arguing over that last few hundred feet is how big should that last wireless link be. That's very clear, and I appreciate that. The one thing that I would say that uh, for anyone who was going to immediately 
oversimplify what you just said to say um, wireless can't do better is that if the FCC cleared up a lot more spectrum with some of the spectrum sharing, then we could see some differences. And so I don't want people to come away and think that any of this stuff is certain. There's always multiple variables that can get involved. And I think we'd all like to see our spectrum used more efficiently so that we can make sure everyone has high quality access. So uh, I don't want anyone to walk away from this thinking that wireless is not good. That's not what you said. (laughs) And there's ways that we can make it a lot better too. Yeah, and let me make sure it's clear that I don't think wireless is going to go away. We need it for mobility. Wireless and wireline networks are going to happily live together mm-hmm. for years and years and years to come. And one's not going to displace the other. One's good at one thing. The other thing is good at the other. You know, if you need fixed broadband at a location, fiber can't be beat. And the closer the fiber is to your home, the more broadband you're going to get. But we're always going to need a wireless network for our mobility and all of those kinds of things. Thank you so much, Larry. I've really enjoyed this conversation, in part because I now know that I have a resource I can just point people to when they want to know any of this stuff. It's very clear. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks. Great talking to you, Christopher. That was Christopher talking with Larry Thompson. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at Muni Networks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. This was episode 444 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Thanks for listening.